0: Chapter fifteen. Of the old man in the corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter fifteen. A terrible plight. Little more than a fortnight after that, Edith Crawford was duly committed to stand her trial before the High Court of Justiciary. She had pleaded not guilty at the pleading diet, and her defense was entrusted to Sir James Fenwick, one of the most eminent advocates at the criminal bar. Strange to say, continued the man in the corner after a while, public opinion from the first went dead against the accused. The public is absolutely like a child, perfectly irresponsible and wholly illogical. It argued that since Miss Crawford had already been ready to contract a marriage with a half-demented, deformed creature, for the sake of his one hundred thousand pounds, she must have been equally ready to murder and rob an old lady for the sake of fifty thousand pounds worth of jewelry without the encumbrance of so undesirable a husband perhaps the great sympathy aroused in the popular mind for david graham had much to do with this ill feeling against the accused david graham had by this cruel and dastardly murder lost the best if not the only friend he possessed he had also lost at one fell swoop the large fortune which lady donaldson had been about to assign to him The deed of the gift had never been signed, and the old lady's vast wealth, instead of enriching her favorite nephew, was distributed, since she had made no will, amongst her heirs at law. And now, to crown this long chapter of sorrow, David Graham saw the girl he loved accused of the awful crime which had robbed him of friend and fortune. It was, therefore, with an unmistakable thrill of righteous satisfaction that Edinburgh society saw this mercenary girl in so terrible a plight. I was immensely interested in the case, and journeyed down to Edinburgh in order to get a good view of the chief actors in the thrilling drama which was about to be unfolded there. I succeeded, I generally do, in securing one of the front seats among the audience, and was already comfortably installed in my place in court when through the trap-door I saw the head of the prisoner emerge. She was very becomingly dressed in deep black, and led by two policemen she took her place in the dock. Sir James Fenwick shook hands with her very warmly, and I could almost hear him instilling words of comfort into her. The trial lasted six clear days, during which time more than forty persons were examined for the prosecution, and as many for the defense. But the most interesting witnesses were certainly the two doctors, the maid Tremlett, Campbell, the high-street jeweler, and David Graham. There was, of course, a great deal of medical evidence to go through. Poor Lady Donaldson had been found with a silk scarf tied tightly around her neck, her face showing even to the inexperienced eye every symptom of strangulation. Then Tremlett, Lady Donaldson's confidential maid, was called. Closely examined by Crown Counsel, she gave an account of the ball at Charlotte Square on the twenty-third, and the wearing of the jewels by Miss Crawford on that occasion. "'I helped Miss Crawford on with the tiara over her hair,' she said, and my lady put the two necklaces round Miss Crawford's neck herself. There were also some beautiful brooches, bracelets, and earrings. At four o'clock in the morning, when the ball was over, Miss Crawford brought the jewels back to my lady's room. My lady had already gone to bed, and I had put out the electric light as I was going too. There was only one candle left in the room close to the bed. Miss Crawford took all the jewels off and asked Lady Donaldson for the key of the safe, so that she might put them away. My lady gave her the key and said to me, You can go to bed, Tremlett. You must be dead tired. I was glad to go, for I could hardly stand up. I was so tired. I said, "'Good-night,' to my lady, and also to Miss Crawford, who was busy putting the jewels away. As I was going out of the room, I heard Lady Donaldson saying, "'Have you managed it, my dear?' Miss Crawford said, "'I have put everything away very nicely.' In answer to Sir James Fenwick, Tremlett said that Lady Donaldson always carried the key of her jewellery safe on a ribbon round her neck, and had done so the whole day preceding her death. "'On the night of the twenty-fourth, she continued, Lady Donaldson seemed rather tired, and went up to her room directly after dinner, and while the family were still sitting in the dining-room. She made me dress her hair, then she slipped on her dressing-gown, and sat in the armchair with a book. She told me that she then felt strangely uncomfortable and nervous, and could not account for it. However, she did not want me to sit with her, so I thought that the best thing I could do was to tell Mr. David Graham that her ladyship did not seem very cheerful. Her ladyship was so fond of Mr. David— it always made her happy to have him with her. I then went to my room, and at half-past eight Mr. David called me. He said, "'Your mistress does seem a little restless to-night. If I were you, I would just go and listen at her door in about an hour's time, and if she has not gone to bed, I would go in and stay with her until she has.' At about ten o'clock I did as Mr. David suggested, and listened at her ladyship's door. However, all was quiet in the room, and thinking her ladyship had gone to sleep, I went back to bed. The next morning, at eight o'clock, when I took my mistress's cup of tea, I saw her lying on the floor, her poor dear face all purple and distorted. I screamed, and the other servants came rushing along. Then Mr. Graham had the door locked and sent for the doctor and the police. The poor woman seemed to find it very difficult not to break down. She was closely questioned by Sir James Fenwick, but had nothing further to say. She had last seen her mistress alive at eight o'clock on the evening of the twenty-fourth. "'And when you listened at her door at ten o'clock,' asked Sir James, "'did you try to open it?' "'I did, but it was locked,' she replied. "'Did Lady Donaldson always lock her bedroom at night?' "'Nearly always. "'And in the morning, when you took in the tea?' "'The door was open. I walked straight in. "'You are quite sure,' insisted Sir James. "'I swear it,' solemnly asserted the woman." After that we were informed by several members of Mr. Graham's establishment that Miss Crawford had been into tea at Charlotte Square, in the afternoon of the 24th, that she told everyone she was going to London by the night mail, as she had some special shopping she wished to do there. It appears that Mr. Graham and David both tried to persuade her to stay to dinner, and then to go by the 9.10 p.m. from the Caledonian station. Miss Crawford, however, had refused, saying she always preferred to go from the Waverley station. It was nearer to her own rooms, and she still had a good deal of writing to do. In spite of this, two witnesses saw the accused in Charlotte Square later on in the evening. She was carrying a bag which seemed heavy, and was walking towards the Caledonian railway station. But the most thrilling moment in that sensational trial was reached on the second day, when David Graham, looking wretchedly ill, unkempt and haggard, stepped into the witness-box. A murmur of sympathy went round the audience at the sight of him, who was the second, perhaps most deeply stricken, victim of the Charlotte Square tragedy. David Graham, in answer to Crown Counsel, gave an account of his last interview with Lady Donaldson. Tremlin had told me that she seemed anxious and upset, and I went to have a chat with her. She soon cheered up, and— There the unfortunate young man hesitated visibly, but after a while resumed with an obvious effort. She spoke of my marriage, and of the gifts she was about to bestow upon me. She said the diamonds would be for my wife, and after that for my daughter, if I had one— she also complained that Mr. McFinley had been so punctilious about preparing the deed of gift, and that it was a great pity the one hundred thousand pounds could not pass from her hands to mine without so much fuss. I stayed talking with her for about half an hour, then I left her, as she seemed ready to go to bed, but I told her maid to listen at the door in about an hour's time. There was a deep silence in the court for several moments, a silence which to me seemed almost electrical. It was as if, some time before it was uttered, The next question put by Crown Counsel to the witness had hovered in the air. "'You were engaged to Miss Edith Crawford at one time, were you not?' One felt, rather than heard, the almost inaudible, yes, which escaped from David Graham's compressed lips. "'Under what circumstances was that engagement broken off?' Sir James Fenwick had already risen in protest, but David Graham had been the first to speak. "'I do not think that I need answer that question.' I will put it in a different form then said crown counsel urbanely one to which my learned friend cannot possibly take exception did you or did you not on october twenty seventh receive a letter from the accused in which she desired to be released from her promise of marriage to you again david graham would have refused to answer and he certainly gave no audible reply to the learned counsel's question but every one in the audience there present "'I, every member of the jury and of the bar read upon david graham's pale countenance and large sorrowful eyes that ominous yes which had failed to reach his trembling lips End of chapter fifteen